The following podcast contains movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Listener discretion is advised. In three, two, one. Rolling sound, quiet. Wait. Good day, good world. You're tuned to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel, and on Subgenre, we're getting specific about films outside the major categories. In season one, that means we're immersing ourselves in the sometimes thought-provoking but always tense universe of submarine movies. In today's episode, we're time-traveling to the 1960s Soviet Union for a communist boat cruise with a nuclear-sized problem. Starring Han Solo lookalike Harrison Ford, and the man with a very specific set of skills, Liam Neeson, in a Cold War action thriller directed by Oscar winner Catherine Bigelow. Pick your captain and protect the state. This is K-19, The Widowmaker. And joining me by Zoom from the valley outside that city they call Los Angeles to gab about this time bomb at sea is the Senior Development Coordinator at Stupid Buddy Studios. That's the production and animation firm co-founded by Mr. Seth Green. It's Mary Thurman. Hey, Mary, how you doing? Hey, Josh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I am so happy to have you here to talk about this film. I had never seen this film before we decided to do this episode, and so uh, I'm excited to talk about it. I just feel like that was my one chance to seem more knowledgeable than you, but I also have never seen this film until <laughs> like we were going to talk about it. So unfortunately, I don't think that I was able to come in with that greater amount of knowledge. Just not watching films, not watching submarine films. Oh, gosh, no. I mean, I, as a development coordinator or senior development coordinator, as it were, I read scripts for a living. I love movies. I mean, my heart is definitely in the animation industry, as you can tell from the company that I work at, but submarine films definitely have a specific niche for me because as a child, I definitely had like a deathly fear of drowning in the ocean. Oh, no. And so submarine films are already so tense and so intense. And I feel like that tension was just doubled or tripled for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you had a fear of drowning growing up. How's that fear going for you now living out by the beach? You know, my therapist may have categorized it as a phobia, but we are doing much better. <laughs> and if I heard correctly, there's also a uh, dad Harrison Ford sort of thing going on, too. I might regret telling you this, honestly, but when I was younger, I was a child as maybe, you know, like eight years old watching the Indiana Jones films. And I was just like, man, Indy's so cool. Like Harrison Ford is so suave. Like what an attractive man. And my mother is watching it with me and she just nods along and she's like, yeah, I've always found him attractive. And I was like, see, we get it. And she's like, he looks like your father. And I was like, no, you've ruined <laughs> this for me forever. I That's probably the moment that sent me to therapy, but I'm not going to tell her that. <laughs> Regardless is not the right word because of that, maybe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, happy go. to be talking about this film with you, K-19, The Widowmaker. Um, mm -hmm. Let's set this film up for everybody listening. What do we know about K-19? What's so funny is when we decided on this film that we were going to talk about, I had actually never heard of it. And when I did a little research on it, I was like, how? How have I never heard of this film? I mean, it came out summer of 2002, directed by Catherine Bigelow of Hurt Locker and Point Break fame. Oh, yeah. Like, starring Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson. I don't even think I have to give you their credits. Honestly, like had a huge budget for what it was. I mean, it was like not even financed by a major studio, but had a hundred million dollar budget. 
That's big. Probably the reason I haven't heard of it is it was a box office flop. It only made like $65 million back. Definitely lost the studio money. It was also made by like National Geographic Partners. And I was so funny seeing that in the credits because I don't think I've ever seen a film that was made by National Geographic that is this type of film instead of like a documentary like about primates. (laughs) Right. No, no. I For any corner of National Geographic, for somebody to say, you know what we should do? We should do a submarine movie with Liam Neeson and Harrison Ford. <laughs> I I can't quite imagine that meeting, but uh, apparently it happened. But I mean, it's also based on a true story, which is very intriguing to me. Like K-19 is an actual Russian submarine that experienced some of these problems. And like originally they actually did try to work with the crew of the actual submarine, but they kind of ran into issues with their portrayal. And some people thought they were taking too many liberties with the facts of what happened. And so they ended up having to change the names of the crew However, when the movie premiered in Russia in October 2002, they did actually fly out 52 members of the original crew, and they mostly said that they appreciated Harrison Ford's performance, even though there was some liberty taken with the actual events. They may be one of the few who enjoyed Harrison Ford's performance. We'll talk about that later. Let's not before <laughs> before we get out of this part of the show, let's make sure that we talk about the writers. Being a screenwriter mm-hmm. myself, we got to mention Christopher Kyle wrote this film. He is the mm-hmm. screenwriter credited screenwriter on Alexander, uncredited on this film, a little script doctoring, a little rewriting by a playwright you may have heard of named Tom Stoppard. I feel like I need to apologize to both of them because most of my criticisms of the film are going to come from the writing. And it's just, (laughs) you know, I'm sorry, Christopher and Tom, I apologize. (laughs) I I am pretty certain that both Christopher and Tom can take the criticism. We'll see. We'll (laughs) we'll put them to the test on this one. But uh, let's talk about K-19 in our feature presentation. K-19, The Widowmaker. At heart, this is a movie about a nuclear submarine that has a nuclear problem and the race to save it and the rest of the world. I'm kind of close there, right? I think it would be much more funny to me if the nuclear submarine had a non-nuclear problem. (laughs) Like that would be a probably like a very unique take. But yes, you're on the money. Well, this submarine film, like a lot of submarine films, like maybe every submarine film that I have seen of late, starts with a title on screen. And for K-19, The Widowmaker, it starts with the longest title sequence on screen. Just... It just keeps going and it doesn't stop. Um, I'm so glad (laughs) that you brought this up because I have a couple of petty commentaries about this film. Oh, please be petty. Possibly the strongest one is I just hate their graphic design so much on, especially on the title screen because, okay, like picture this, this movie is set in the 1960s. It came out in 2002. The font they chose looks like you're in the eighties somehow. And then like it comes up and it's like in 1961 and you're like, okay, you know, you have to start with the year. And then it says like the rest of everything, even though it doesn't capitalize the first sentence. And then the (laughs) second title also starts with the words in 1961. Again, and I'm like, I did not forget the year already. It's like so repetitive. And in those that title sequence, we do get this, you know, kind of ominous setup of for for 28 Mm -hmm. years, this story couldn't be told. In 1961, the Soviet Union has enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world two times over. 
the United mm-hmm. States has enough nuclear weapons to destroy it 10 times over. And they, they tell us about how we're building more and how there's nuclear submarines that are being deployed and how powerful men on both sides believe war is inevitable. It's only a question of when and who will strike first. Dun, dun, dun. Which, mm-hmm. which just seems like the perfect way to start a very... Is Hollywood a bad word here? To, to start a very Hollywood movie. Oh, what's so funny to me is this film almost exclusively deals with like Russia and the Russian crew. And it's like very specific to the Soviet Union. And for some reason, they had to throw in the like fact that the United States had way more nuclear power than Russia in like this title sequence. I don't know. I agree. It's very Hollywood, though. Like you expect it to be a lot more cat and mouse than it is from these like words that they chose. Yeah. And really, even from the poster, I, let's, let's just start at the poster. I don't want to linger too long on this, but the, 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 the poster graphic design, the graphic design. <laughs> I mean, if you if you saw the poster, it's a big mm-hmm. face picture of Harrison Ford and a submarine. That's it. It's it's Harrison Ford on a submarine. And that, I think, is what K-19 really presents itself to be in the beginning. And I will maybe save for a little later on, talk about why it's taken me this long to seeing K-19. We'll get there. But mm-hmm. let's let's move past these terrible titles at the beginning or uh, and, and move to the first thing we see, which is a submarine and obviously not an American submarine. This is a Soviet submarine. There are, how do we know that? Because there are people speaking in various levels of acceptable accents that maybe imply that this is a Russian submarine. I have to say that the levels of accents confused me so much at the beginning of this movie because like there's so much action going on and I'm like, oh, they're going to fire missiles. Like everything's crazy. And just different people have more or less of a Russian Russian accent. And it took me, I got to admit, it took me probably until they said the captain's name to realize that this definitely was a Russian sub as opposed to just some sort of multilingual sub. The accents in this film warrant an entire discussion, which (laughs) which I I think we should probably have in a while. It is just they're they're a thing. They're a thing. Yeah, for Um, sure. Let's get back to the nukes then. um, We see Liam Neeson, obviously not Russian, but, you know, playing one here as Captain Mikhail Polanin, who is commanding this sub, says that he is readying the nukes, right? So we start in the middle of an action sequence. They're readying the nukes. Something is going to happen. The political officer, which there's always a political officer on a Soviet sub. obviously. Obviously. And the political officer says, hey, do you have a minute? And Polanin's like, no, I'm doing missiles. And... uh, So Captain Poland is trying to launch some nukes, and he's got this uh, this officer um, named Kornilov, played by a man with the best damn name I have ever heard, Lex Shrapnel. I mean, how name. great of a name is that for an action movie guy? It shows us how in the 60s, the Soviets were getting permission from Moscow to fire their nukes, which is basically a little cartridge. It looks kind of like uh, an eight track that they <laughs> shove into the machine. They wait for the green light. Boop, we get the green light. We have a request to launch nukes and destroy the world. They uh, Lex Shrapnel, Kornilov, does this. He gets the green light, confirms it to Polonin. Polonin says, great, and physically makes his way from the bridge to wherever it is in the ship that you launch missiles from. Now, in a lot of movies, you know, we've this show, we have talked about, you know, a lot of different submarine movies, and uh, mm-hmm. a couple of them involve nuclear submarines, and the nuclear weapons on those submarines, they're fired from the bridge. Captain's on the bridge, you fire from the bridge. Um, mm-hmm. In this particular one, it's like in the basement, it's in some <laughs> other wing of the sub, and so he is having to travel from one end of the sub to the other, and that means levels from top to bottom, and he's going side to side. But the wonderful thing that that did for me in watching this was, it gives us this great 
great geography of a submarine. Oh, yeah. I think you really have to give credit to the directing here because the way that they travel through the submarine is very interesting. Like you get these longer shots. Like it's very interesting because you get a sense of this chaos that's going on on the ship because you're constantly having to like go around people. People are always ducking. It's obviously a submarine, but it's very like furious activity no matter where you're going. And this opening sequence is tense because mm-hmm. of that movement, because of we're launching missiles, obviously. There is a tenseness to the opening scene. Um, mm-hmm. So he, he makes his way all the way down to missile launch. You got three or four keys that have to be inserted by different people. They're all doing that. The last guy, and you know, hats off to the writer putting this in and Bigelow putting it in, the last guy to insert his key just has this slightest hesitation and a handshake as he puts it in, which makes us as an audience feel a little nervous. Polonin orders the missile launch, fire the missile right at that moment. Uh, the sonar operator detects a torpedo launch that's coming toward them. And right at that moment, the launch panel that was going to launch and destroy the world shorts out, bzz, 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 gone. And Polonin stops the drill. It hasn't been a real missile launch. It's been a drill. And uh, there are some people around him that get a little angry about that. Liam Neeson's performance here. I kind of had this moment because when the electrical short happens, he just like non-verbally growls at the launch machine. And it was just, honestly, I think it was a a great moment in his performance. But also to me, I don't know why I was like, I relate to you. When technology (laughs) shorts out, this is the worst. You're having a bad day, my dude. But I'm just like, you know, there's much higher stakes than that. It's obviously about nuclear submarines. But just in that one moment, I was like, that guttural growl from Neeson when technology doesn't work was very relatable. Computers are computers. He has a geek squad moment and it's it is <laughs> it is it's not good. He doesn't like it, but for the audience and for thankfully the the planet I guess at that point, we find out it's not a real nuke. It's mm-hmm. it's a drill, but the fact that it didn't go as planned angers the political officer that is on board. And the political officer, as political officers are wont to do, wants a name. Who can I blame for this? Whose fault is it that this thing shorted out? But Neeson is not able to give him one. It's an interesting character moment because at first he says, like, I don't know anyone's names. But then he gives his own name because he is so angered at how, like, shoddily and quickly constructed the submarine has been. Like, you get this sense that, honestly, it's a very interesting portrayal of the Soviet Union because normally when we see this, the brass are pushing you and it's like going to be a a, a poorly constructed product, but there's this timeline. You associate that with more like capitalist films because you know you're treating people as like time is money cogs in the machine but here we get the sense that like the communist government has this timeline a lot of it's the arms race honestly but they're just like we need this ship to be done we need these drills to go well so that we can have this submarine that is our most powerful one ever out at sea ready in case of actual nuclear launch And Neeson is so angry that they won't give him the quality that he needs or the time that he needs that he's like, you want a name? Here's my name. Just write that down. Don't blame my crew when it is you guys who are doing this to us. I think this does good for the story in that it sets up Polonin as a realist. He is the one person who can look at the ship and go, this ship is a big steaming pile of junk. Like, what (laughs) what do you want me to do with this? And everyone around him is looking at it through a political lens of it doesn't matter that it's junk. Why doesn't it work? And mm-hmm. and so that, I think, is going to f- help us understand Poland's character as we move forward. It also gives us a great sense of his priorities. Like, he is willing to stand up to the people in authority over him because he has a strong sense of belief. Absolutely. And that's going to come in handy here in a little while, because after this short and after this uh, run-in with the political officer, uh, he takes a little climb up onto the mast to look around, and we find out that the K-19... 
uh, is still under construction. It's in the, the shipyard and these drills that they're running are on a ship that is only half finished, um, which then takes us to the first view we get of Captain Alexei Vostrikov, played by Harrison Ford, who is in his nice dress uniform and exiting a train in Moscow, obviously an important dude. He climbs some steps in a really old looking building and finds himself in a room full of naval officers who are talking to him about his new orders. And those orders are to test fire a missile. Honestly, it's very interesting the way they introduce Harrison Ford. There's a moment in which this child sees him walking past and raises a salute and he smiles and salutes the child. And I honestly thought that that was a really interesting characterization. I thought that that was going to be a way of, you know, contrasting him as like a, a good person who cares about people. But honestly, the most relevant characterization he gets is when he's talking about these new orders and the brass are basically telling him that he is going to be taking over the K-19. Even though he is referring to Neeson's character as the captain, they're telling him, like, you are going to be in charge instead. And he actually brings up a mild protest somewhat in the way that Neeson did, although much less furious, that the K-19 is being constructed too quickly. But when the top brass tells him that it needs to be on time, unlike Neeson, who shouts back, Harrison Ford goes silent. The brass is really, really interested in K-19 getting out there and getting out there quickly for really an interesting reason, which is unlike we feel like the Soviet Union would be very secretive about their best nuclear sub and wouldn't want anybody to see it. It's exactly the opposite. They want the Americans to see the K-19. They want them to know that it exists. And the reason they want them to know it exists is because they only have nukes that can destroy the Earth two times. America has nukes that can destroy the Earth 10 times. But if they know that this big bad ship is out there, it is a deterrent against any perceived aggression by the U.S., which is kind of an interesting logic. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the reason they want the ship out there. That's the reason they want to launch this missile is basically just, it's a weird flex, right? It's, it's what mm -hmm. they're going to do. One of the more interesting lines, I feel, is that they, in doing this missile test, they're doing it so that the American secret spy planes will find out on their own that the Russians have this. It's such an interesting peeling back the veil into the thought process here, which is like, we know the Americans have secret spy planes. They might not know that we know, but we know they have these. So we are going to stage a missile launch so that they will then think that they discovered our big, bad missile submarine. It, it, there's just so much circuitous logic that still makes sense from a political perspective. Oh yeah, no, it's super chess. And I, I love that about it. And let's not pass this moment without talking about Marshal Zelensov, who is kind of the biggest, grumpiest party apparatchik, who is played by one of my favorite character actors, Yas, I'm gonna say his name wrong, but Yas Ackland, who I ha I think, if I remember correctly, I have talked about in other episodes of this show, Yas Ackland shows up in another very prominent submarine movie, which is The Hunt for Red October. Uh, Yas Ackland plays a Russian diplomat in that movie and just is fantastic in it. He plays a Soviet apparatchik naval guy in this one in the person of Marshal Zelensov. He is the guy from Lethal Weapon 2 who is the South African guy with the line, diplomatic immunity. <laughs> He's this man has found his calling in all of these political, you know, diplomatic positions. And I apologize to Yas Ackland if I don't know if he is still with us. I hope that he is still with us. But if he is, put him in every submarine movie that comes out from here forward. Hollywood, listen to me now. You know, according to the Internet, he is 93 years old, but seems to still be alive. Oh, good. I, him and Betty White. Put him and Betty White in a submarine mm -hmm. movie. I'm there. You have my money. Same. So we are off from this 
submarine room where we're talking about launching missiles and putting Harrison Ford in command. And we're back to the Kola Peninsula where Alexei uh, arrives to take over the boat from Polonin. At that moment, uh, he is led into the submarine and they're like, who's this guy? But he introduces himself and the first person he meets is an officer named Demichev, played by an actor named Steve Nicholson. Uh, Demichev is the torpedo officer who says, uh, yeah, you're, you're, a, you're a captain, but why are you on this boat? He says, oh, I'm here to see Captain Polonin. Okay, great. So we take him to see Captain Polonin. Polonin and uh, Alexei seem to know each other. Some handshakes. Hey, how you been? Is it okay that I'm here to take over your boat? Yeah, it's fine. I'll be the executive officer. Everything is cool. Well, then great. They go on a tour of the boat. This is Harrison Ford's first time to look at this boat, and it's a complete mess. It is a total wreck. I mean, you totally see the effects of the government pushing them forward so quickly, especially when they go and tour the nuclear reactor, and they're missing an officer. And he's like, where is your nuclear reactor officer? And the guy is asleep past out drunk just like around a corner and you can hear him snoring and Harrison Ford is incredibly angry uh I believe it's uh Lieutenant Yashin who's played by Peter Graham and immediately that's the rest that we see of him of the movie because Harrison Ford tells him to pack his bags and get out they need a new nuclear officer this is absurd it's such a low standard and Polonin is begging him he's like no you I know he's drunk I know he was asleep I know that he's not manning the nuclear stuff, even though he's the nuclear officer, but he's the best that we have. We need him. And uh, Alexi says, no, go. I want him off the boat. Uh, we deliver or we drown is the line. This boat will put out to sea in two weeks. Uh, Harrison Ford is all in and uh, the nuclear reactor officer, we're, we're not going to use that guy. I, I do love that this, again, sort of contracts the two characters, right? Like Neeson is a realist. He knows that people have these flaws, but he understands that experience is more valuable to him than personality or than like, for example, here, like being a drunk, whereas Harrison Ford coming from all the top brass and them giving him his mission and his sort of like orders wants everything to be picture perfect as best as it can be, because he is thinking of the political implications of things and not necessarily of the realism of they may not be able to get the most qualified guy again, even though they will get someone who is Sober. You also get a bit of the perfectionist tendency, the things bother him thing as they are wandering back through this sub on the way to the nuclear compartment because, you know, every third pipe is leaking and it's it's leaking on him and his nice uniform. And you've got the other guys around, you know, telling one another, don't worry, when the boat is pressurized, all the leaks will stop. But for now, he's he's being leaked on. There's uh, a couple <laughs> of very humorous moments there. One of them is when he's being leaked on and the officer who's following him uh, is like taking down notes about mistakes on the ship. And he, Harrison Ford just like wipes his face and the officer's like noted. Uh, we will look <laughs> into that. It's a relatable moment. And it is a small way to show that this boat is not entirely what the Soviets hope that it can be, the, the <laughs> little leaks, right? They, they are a foreshadowing maybe of the scene that follows, which is two weeks later, the, the boat has been welded together in whatever way it has been welded together and is made seaworthy. Uh, duct we'll tape. Duct tape. We'll put seaworthy <laughs> in quotes. And uh, Alexei is there in his dress uniform again. And he is, as with other big Hollywood uh, submarine movies, has the moment to give his big pep talk, his big speech before they put out to sea, which he does in whatever accent Harrison Ford decided he <laughs> wanted to use in this film. That's fine. But he gives his speech. 
and the tradition on putting boats to sea, as you may have seen from cartoons and other things, is to take a champagne bottle and whack it against the side of the boat and it breaks and then that's great luck and then everybody gets on the boat and you go to sea. In this instance, they have a band playing, they have a lady who has the champagne bottle on a rope and she's gonna swing it and break it and she takes one big swing with this champagne bottle and nothing happens. It doesn't break. It doesn't And everyone break. around them is like, oh no, we are cursed. Yeah, that's the beginning really, of the curse. It's a really interesting moment because, well, first off, the moment when the bottle hits the submarine and doesn't break is simultaneously like comedic and very ominous. Like I laughed. I laughed aloud <laughs> when it didn't break because so many things have gone wrong in building this boat that it's kind of like the cherry on top that the champagne bottle didn't break. But it is really interesting. They sort of set up this idea that the boat is cursed and, you know, we can talk as we go on but i kind of feel as though they could have delivered on it a little bit more in the in the film itself uh, that the, that the boat itself just had this uh, uh this aura about it that was making things bad mm-hmm. yeah. i feel like it's it's a really interesting moment when everyone is like oh man this boat is cursed the boat is the problem but you know we'll we'll talk about how it's dealt with later in the film and it, you know you never want the champagne bottle to not break when you're going to go inside a steel tube that's going to go several hundred feet under the water that's never good sets up a certain level of anxiety uh, among the crew that's about to get on and board this thing. And one of those people that is getting on board this ship is Lieutenant Vadim Radchenko, played by the awesome actor Peter Sarsgaard, who is arriving to take the place of the former uh, nuclear officer who was drunk and laying in a corner and isn't there anymore. He's the new guy in town, but new guy in a couple of different ways. He is fresh out of school. Also, I will admit that when I saw his name, I did immediately think he was a Skarsgård, and I had to be like, no, 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 Sarsgård. Sarsgård. It's very similar. But he just graduated from the academy. He's never operated a reactor out at sea, and Liam Neeson Polenin is begging Harrison Ford. He is inexperienced. We should not take him on this ramshackle boat. Like, it's a horrible idea. Yeah, he's the intern. Like, why are you Why are you bringing the intern on board to run the nuclear reactor? Did you not get the memo that this is a big, dangerous boat? Why do we have this guy fresh out of school? And Harrison Ford's like, with a line, by the way, with a, with a line that, that really kind of says everything about Harrison Ford, which is that he's qualified or command would not have sent him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, it's and a good line. It is. And I can't quite tell in that moment whether he believes it or whether that's what you say because you are an officer in the Soviet Navy. There's this really interesting through line about duty and sort of like what that means. And I think they explore it even further, like later in the film. But it's very clear that right now, Liam Neeson and Harrison Ford are on opposite sides of what they think that duty means. Like Neeson thinks that duty is to make sure everything is functioning properly. And Ford has this loyalty to the sort of uh, system or the party rather. And it is when Vadim is boarding the boat and kind of finding his space and where he's going to work in the reactor room, when he meets the person who will kind of be his his right hand, his shadow, um, and in some ways his opposite, uh, which is the senior technician whose name is Pavel and played by an actor named Christian Camargo, who is actually going to show up in another Catherine Bigelow film, The Hurt Locker, later on. So really great actors uh, both inhabiting this space. But Vadim meets Pavel. Pavel tells him, you know, hey, welcome aboard. Uh, Pavel has this habit of going over to the dial on the wall that's really, I think, the temperature gauge for how the nuclear reactor is doing. 
and just giving it a little tap here and there because it doesn't always seem to be working. You can tell as the audience that something is going on, that something's up, but we don't, obviously, I don't think the average viewer knows enough about nuclear reactors to really know what's going on. But whenever anyone is tapping a gauge, you're like, mm, that's not reading the number that you want it to. Brief aside, I personally would say Pavel is arguably the most attractive person in the, this cast. <laughs> but I mean, Josh, do you disagree with me? Like, I don't who's... think I disagree with you. <laughs> Oh, two for Pavel. All right, Christian Camargo. 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 I'm terrible with names. I apologize, Christian. If you ever listen to this podcast, you have both of our votes as the most attractive one on the K-19. This is the moment in the film where I started paying much attention because <laughs> as much setup as we have had to this point in the film, the setup has not been at a pace that my mind was going, oh yeah, this is, I'm enjoying this. We're going at a at an interesting action movie level pace. There was a little bit of a dragginess going on. But right about this point is where it starts to get interesting. And, and that starts with a crate of oranges. It's such an interesting scene because like we talked earlier that they have some of these longer shots in this film. And again, you know, credit to Catherine Bigelow for the interesting direction. But we follow this crate of oranges that, you know, supplies are being loaded onto the ship and it gets, you know, passed from person to person. And it leads us to this really distressed doctor. And he is shouting for someone to stop the delivery truck because he's been given the wrong drugs. He has the wrong medicine and he is running after the delivery truck. And we get this like very interesting symbol of, I suppose, how the crew are being treated by the outside world because he runs in front of the delivery truck to stop it but the truck doesn't stop. And kills the doctor instantly, which is never good. You never you never want your ship doctor to be killed instantly or otherwise. And it is sort of an escalation of this, we are cursed. We've got a dead guy and we still haven't left port. And this is where the crew starts discussing that maybe the the nickname for this boat uh, should be the Widowmaker because that seems to be what it is doing. Which I do have a fun fact about that, but I'm trying to decide if I should save it. Oh, no, later. do it, do it. So the Widowmaker is actually a fabrication for the movie. That was not the actual nickname of the boat. The boat did not have a nickname until it did. And, you know, this is a spoiler for later in the movie. They do have trouble with the reactor. And that is when it got a nickname, which I can reveal to you later on. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, if you're if you're listening to this and haven't <laughs> figured out yet that there are going to be spoilers, <laughs> there are going to be spoilers. Get used to that. If you've uh, also listening to this and you haven't figured out something's gonna go wrong on the nuclear sub with the guy tapping the gauge for the nuclear reactor. That's nicknamed the Widowmaker. <laughs> right. Maybe it's time to geek out. <laughs> awesome. Today's geek out is about something we touched on earlier, which was the cinematography in this film, especially the moving shots, especially the long shots. Big props from me to the uh, the cinematographer on this film, who, uh, by the way, is Jeff Cronenweth. And if you are unfamiliar with the work of Jeff Cronenweth, he has done movies you might have heard of like Fight Club or uh, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Gone Girl or Social Network, you know, these types of, of movies. Which, I, now that I think about it, kind of makes sense, too, because there's this lovely opening sequence in Fight Club that sort of travels the long length of something. It turns out just being a gun, but travels the long length of something to get from one place to another. It just, it just makes sense to me that, that it's Jeff Cronenworth that's shooting this. So 
Thank you, Jeff Cronenweth. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jeff. I feel this. Wow, I'm on first name basis with Jeff, too. No, I, I think that it does. Like now that you've listed, you know, his credits, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think he's very good with that sense of like tension, because I think that that is one of the most successful things in this movie is that even if I don't understand how a character choice is motivated, there's not like any boring shots in this movie. There's not any shot that really takes you out of a tense situation. They're all lit and shot in a way that will keep you within that tension, whether or not you feel like that tension is motivated. Totally. It is in this discussion of the Widowmaker name and right about that time that we do get some backstory on Alexei, or at the very least, Alexei's father. That Alexei's father was a hero in the Russian Revolution and that he ended up dying in the Gulag. And so the way that Harrison Ford has become a captain in the Soviet Navy seems a little interesting because you wouldn't think that the guy whose father died in the Gulag would be the person that would end up captaining a boat in the Soviet Navy, and yet here he is. Um, yeah. But it is is right about that time that the new doctor, uh, the, the base physician who they have drafted into this position, Dr. Savrin, played by Donald Sumter, uh, shows up and says, okay, I hear you need a doctor. Can I hop on the boat? I'm ready to go. Harrison Ford uh, says that, you know, great, get on there. We're going to need a doctor. Oh, yeah. How long are we going to be gone, Captain? I uh, hope it's not very long. Oh, why? Because I get seasick. I do feel like they do a good job of setting up a lot of ways in which everything is kind of doomed. Like we have like the base doctor who's never served on a submarine. And of course he gets seasick, which is horrible. You're going to be above the water. You're going to be below the water. There's ocean everywhere. Seasickness is not a good thing. So we're trying to get everybody out of port here. We've had this very long setup to what will be an even longer movie, but we're trying to get everybody out of port. But the last thing really kind of sort of that has to happen is that Vadim has to say goodbye to his girl Katya, played by an actress named Natalia Ventilova. Katya, by the way, in this scene is the only female character with a line in the entire movie of K-19. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get a lot of lines. I think she mostly <laughs> just yells his name. And if anyone has forgotten who Vadim is by now, he is the uh, nuclear reactor officer. Yes, he is He is the Sarsgaard, not Skarsgård. He has a beautiful girlfriend, potentially fiance, uh, named Katya. He makes sure to go back and give her the final kiss and the I'll be fine, by which... You know, if you've ever seen a movie in your life, you know, probably is not a good sign when you have the moment where you're kissing and hugging the the girlfriend as you get on the submarine. But Mm -hmm. they put to sea anyway. At sea, uh, Zelensov is hoping that they picked the right man in Alexei and to prove that he is a, a good captain. Uh, He says, dive the boat. He puts them out to sea and off they go. Uh, The boat does start to leak there a few drips here and there, but it will be okay. And here we start Alexei's thing that he does over and over and over again to order a drill. Oh, it's so interesting because uh, let's just say at this point in the movie, I have definitely recognized that they've said, oh, this man, you know, married in to his political career. Like, you know, he's trying to prove himself to the brass, you know, all of these things. But I I definitely didn't track it as much until I went back to think about it that, you know, he needs this boat to be ship shape. He's going to order all of these drills until these men are up to his very high, very buttoned up standard. And he keeps ordering drill after drill. And the first one, he simulates an electrical fire in the galley and flooding and they 
fail miserably. They don't put it out fast enough. The fire, the hypothetical fire spreads and Harrison Ford uh, or Alexi is very disappointed. Yeah. And there, there are some interesting echoes in this character trait and in this way of commanding the ship mm-hmm. of uh, Run Silent, Run Deep which is another movie that we are, are uh, talking about this season. In that movie, Clark Gable, as the captain of a boat that is traveling in the Bungo Straits in World War II, keeps pushing his men to do the same drill over and over and over again, which eventually, potentially, will pay off for them at some point. And that it, that seems to be what we are getting with Alexi here, although maybe the crew doesn't realize that to begin with, um, as he keeps ordering drill after drill and they keep failing. Um, but they're pretty but, disastrous. They're pretty disastrous. It's not. It's not great. But but he's gonna he's gonna keep working them. And there is a political officer, as we said before, and on this boat, um, his name is Suslov, who kind of pulls Poland in aside in the officer's mess and says, "I know that you're having to be the executive officer here. You're not being the captain on this one. And I know that Harrison Ford is the captain, and and we're kind of all having to do what he says. But I'm still proud to be serving." There's a lot of undercurrents there, and you know, Poland and Neeson doesn't really react a lot until he, you know, basically says like, it's fine. I'm happy to be serving. But he, you have this interesting moment where someone is declaring his loyalty to him and not to Alexi, to Harrison Ford. And it's, it's interesting because Neeson doesn't stop him from speaking, but doesn't encourage him. Yeah, it certainly sets up what is a familiar trope from submarine films, which is the crew split in two. Right. Mm -hmm. The divided loyalties there are in some movies, there's mutiny on a sub in some movies. There are people who work harder for one officer than the other. And this is maybe one of the first moments where we get that there are these two camps, at least as far as the sailors are concerned, even if things haven't escalated themselves yet. And that Polonin is maybe reluctant to be put in that position. There's also, I mean... This is going to be sort of a strange comp. They're trying to do sort of a Remember the Titans here. If you take (laughs) out the big point of Remember the Titans, which is race, which is you have this captain or coach who is the established one who has the trust and loyalty of his crew or Mm -hmm. his team. And then you bring in someone above him who has to prove themselves and the team doesn't necessarily like them. And there are people who have expressed their loyalty to the old coach, to the old captain. And there's definitely a tension where you do sort of get this foreshadowing maybe there's going to be a change of leadership. You get kind of a who's the boss situation, but on a submarine. We get a sequence here where a few things happen in a row. You've got Vadim and Pavel back in the nuclear compartment who are talking about the future of of nuclear technology and Vadim's on the it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread camp. And Pavel's like, yeah, maybe not so much. Um, There's some more drilling that goes on over and over. They keep failing. It's not great. They're made to watch these newsreels. The crew, that is, are made to watch these newsreels uh, of America to show what how America is duplicitous and that it's not as great as it makes itself out to be. So they're watching movies that have Nixon and uh, the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, that's movie night on the sub. Um, <laughs> and and it's right that second uh, or, or shortly thereafter where Alexi, as the man who likes to run drills, says, we're going to run a torpedo drill even though there are ice formations above us. It's the worst drill that they've done so far. They're moving these giant heavy torpedoes. Two crew people are injured. Uh, One of them injures their hand and vastly- Horribly so. Horribly so. 
It's awful. Like you see someone's hand get caught up between chains that are, you know, going around a pulley that hold up this incredibly heavy torpedo. Like you can almost feel like his hand being crushed and someone else just straight up smacks their head into a metal piece of the submarine. It's a little bit gruesome and yet at the same time, just incredibly incompetent. Yeah. And Polonin goes to see the crew afterwards and hears their complaints. He's with the men and hears kind of their concerns about why is this guy running so many drills and why are we doing all these things and look, there were people hurt and consoles them. In opposition, Alexei gathers all the officers in the officer's mess and says, the reason that these accidents happened, the reason that these men are not meeting uh, what I want them to in the drills, the reason why this boat basically is leaking and, and not doing what it's supposed to do is because of you. You are not motivating these men well enough. It is your mistake. It's a very interesting contrast because you get, again, get the sense that Polonin sees all of these people as people. And Harrison Ford, Alexei, sees them more as cogs in the machine that are not functioning properly. And in the midst of all of the chaos that is these two different ways of handling the situation and the accident and all the other madness that's happening on this cursed ship, we get a moment with Vadim where he is lying in his bunk and writing Katya in case he dies. Foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, really a really great way to start out your first ever nuclear submarine posting. It's my first try, but boy, am I whew, don't have a good feeling about this one. <laughs> they call it the Widowmaker. Thank God I'm just a fiance. Yeah, there was the executive sitting in a room somewhere watching the dailies of this thing going, you know, I don't think it's clear enough that things are going to go wrong in this boat. Can we have the guy write the girl that we saw earlier and tell her that he's going to die? Is that possible? And we that's how this made it. We spent at up. least 45 minutes trying to get this doomed boat out of the shipyard <laughs> and under the ice. And you know what? I don't think the audience understands that people might die. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of, of people might die, uh, this is when Alexi makes his biggest move to date in terms of ordering drills and says, uh, we are going to do an emergency dive drill. We are going to dive this boat to its maximum operational depth, which they're calling 250 meters in this case, which for viewers of other submarine films, what is referred to often as hull crush depth, right? We might remember that from other films. So Alexi says, we're going to take this sucker down to hull crush depth. Polonin's like, the hell you will. Like, that's not a good place to be. And Alexi says, yeah, I know it's near hull crush depth. We're going to do it anyway. And down they go. Honestly, Josh, this is like one of the least motivated parts. Like, I know they try to like bring it back in, you know, with, with his character's explanation later, but He's ordering this deep dive and the tension is there. Like you feel yeah. the tension, like he's sort of pushing everyone to their limits and everyone's sweating and the whole crew, like, you know, hears the creaking of this already leaky hole. And at the same time, you know, we don't get a big sense of what's going on in Alexi's mind right now. He just orders all of these drills, which were like, okay, you know, you need everyone to be at operational capacity. And out of nowhere, he's like, let's go down to where we might all get crushed under the ocean. And that has nothing to do with how well the crew is functioning, but I want to do it. And when they get down there, we, I mean, for better or for worse, we get a view of the outside of the sub and this interesting shot where the sub actually does begin to crush. Like we got this set up a few scenes prior where we saw the number on 
the conning tower of the sub, right? And as as they get down to whole crush depth, that particular part of the submarine just begins to crinkle, you know, like a ball of foil. You know, you see boom, 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 boom. And so we know danger ahead, right? The boat is, is caving in on all of them. But that isn't enough. That's not enough for this drill. Alexi says, hull crush depth, ah, that's nothing. We're going to do an emergency surface. So blow the tanks and let's get to the surface as quickly as we can. Problem with that is, if you do that in an uncontrolled manner, all of a sudden you lose control of a ship and the ship could essentially flop over like a dead fish. He also orders like another drill mid like let's all get crushed and then let's all surface and maybe flop over. He's like, let's also do a flood drill. Because why not? You know, why not just like it was such an interesting moment because I think I wrote down while I was watching. I was like, why are we creating all of this tension for something that is just being imposed by one of the characters when there's clearly going to be tension about this nuclear reactor? We have this whole moment where one of the characters is creating all the problems. But I will say it does function in the sense that you see the crew and how they've grown and that they do the drill a lot more effectively when they get a sense of imminent danger. This is another time where I felt one of those echoes from another movie, because this is very, very similar to the moment in Crimson Tide where Gene Hackman's character, in the midst of there being a fire in the galley, decides to run a missile drill right in the middle of this, because as he explains later, chaos is not something to be feared. It is something to take advantage of. You're not always going to fight wars in in calm circumstances. And so you want everybody to know that. So this, this was a moment that to me felt a little bit like that, but maybe without the clear logic to me as an audience member of why exactly these things were being done at that moment. Because not only are we surfacing, and not only are we running this drill, and not only are we crushing the ship, but Alexi is knowingly against the recommendations of everybody else who's on the boat. He is trying to get this boat to surface through a meter of ice that has formed Mm -hmm. over the top of the ocean. They're going to crash into the ice. No matter what choice Alexi makes in this moment, there's someone there who is begging him not to make it. And it's very interesting because he just bowls right through them and is like, you know, this time of year, the ice is getting thinner. Crash through the ice. Let's go from the depths to the very top. Let's go. It is. And you will. I hope you will pardon this expression. To me, while I was watching it, it felt like he was involved in some measuring contest, but I was not quite sure whose dick he was measuring his against. A hundred percent, because I mean, they sort of try to build this idea of like, oh, he needs to prove himself because he's just married into this career. But none of that, like we don't get enough character motivation for that to translate into him needlessly risking everyone's lives multiple times in a row. It makes absolutely like no sense in the moment. It doesn't. And yet he does it. And so on the way to the surface, the boat that, hey, it could roll over if you go up too fast, the boat starts to roll over. And hey, that I that's up there, it could be kind of too thick for you to go through. They hit that ice and crash through it and have this kind of very violent cutting and sliding through the ice as the conning tower is is pushing aside ice that is definitely more than a meter thick um, and potentially damaging this boat. And I don't know why we're doing this, but we are. And finally, the submarine comes to a halt. And it's a halt at that moment where they raise the radio antenna and prepare to fire it's surprisingly, I think, to a lot of the people on board, they're going to test fire this missile that uh, Han Solo has been sent out there to do in the first place. 
like you were saying about the dick measuring contest, it's it's kind of a power trip of a moment because he's like, I've taken you to the depths, I've taken you to the surface, here's all this chaos and adrenaline. Hey, we are firing the missile now. We're doing something that no one in the Russian Navy has done. We are going to be this fully operational like missile launching submarine. And so they ask Moscow for missile launch authority. And you've seen what they did previously in the movie in the drill. All the keys are inserted and they fire the missile. And off it goes into the sky and it's beautiful and the the spy planes are going to see it and everybody's going to know that the USSR is the man for all of this to have gone on. Uh, Demichev, the missile officer, had to have relayed the order, hey, launch the missile, which he does. But immediately after having done that, he goes and finds a gun just kind of tucks it away and we don't really talk about it. The, it's Chekhov's gun that kind of shows up at this point in the film, which is an interesting predicament. They're like, oh, we, you know, might need a gun later. Let's just introduce that now. <laughs> you it's, might it you might need it on the cursed <laughs> boat. Say, there's definitely not been any foreshadowing regarding potential coups or anything. As far as Alexi is concerned, yes, we've crushed the boat. Yes, we've maybe broken parts of the boat as we've gone through the ice. But damn it, we fired the missile. I did what my mission is we have succeeded it's miller time and polonin has this kind of heated exchange with alexi and tells him like what you are doing is nuts dude like i don't i don't know what you're doing yeah you fired your missile but this is not what you need to be doing and i think the line is you were lucky captain i hope i'm on another boat when your luck runs out very powerful line we'll be back in a minute What if, and follow me here, what if the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris is a fake? Or what if artist Vincent Van Gogh, you know, the sunflowers and starry night guy, he didn't kill himself, but instead was actually murdered. You'll hear these incredible stories and a lot more when you subscribe to the Art Curious podcast. How did a cutthroat rivalry between two Renaissance masters culminate in one of the greatest artworks of all time? And was a British painter actually the real Jack the Ripper? On Art Curious, host and, truth be told, my lovely voiced wife, Jennifer Dassel, explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And do you need to love art or even know anything about it to love this show? Are you kidding me? Before listening to Art Curious, I knew exactly nothing about fine art or the weird and amazing stories that seem to follow around some of its most iconic works and artists. Like, how did Leonardo's Salvador Mundi become the most expensive artwork ever sold at auction? And where has it disappeared to ever since? A best of recommendation by reviewers at Oh The Oprah Magazine, PC Magazine, Salon, Uproxx, it goes on and on. Art Curious is podcast storytelling for the art lover and the art novice, like me, and maybe you. It's the juiciest, the most shocking, and the most fascinating tales from the world of paintbrushes, printmakers, and patrons. Season 9 is out now, so subscribe today to the Art Curious Podcast with Jennifer Dassel and find out more about the show at artcuriouspodcast.com or by searching for Art Curious, that's one word, in your favorite podcast app. The Art Curious Podcast. That's A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. The Art Curious Podcast. Subscribe for Season 9 now. (laughs) 
This is Subgenre. I'm Josh Dassel. We are here talking about K-19, The Widowmaker with Mary Thurman. Hey, Mary. Hey, Josh. Good to still be here. I'm glad that you're still here. I'm glad that you haven't left uh, because we are about to do one of my favorite features on this show. It's called Subpar. In Subpar, we talk about the bits and bobs in the movie that we just can't let go because they're so bad that they're wonderful. And and for me, in K-19, The Widowmaker, there are two. And let's start with the biggest and most obvious one, the accents. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you brought this up. I have been holding back all podcast because I feel as though even though it can be kind of difficult to see Liam Neeson in this sort of like Russian officer role, it is so much harder to see Harrison Ford in his quote unquote Russian accent. Oh, no, no, no. The quotes have quotes on on Harrison Ford's (laughs) accent. It's it's not good. It's so bad. And it's also... Here's the thing. I have a couple of other, you know, petty things that I'll bring up here and there, but like he has a lot of lines. It's a big thing. And Harrison Ford, like we all know him from all of his work. He has such a distinct way of speaking. Yeah. And it is not conducive to Russian. And I would have never thought that before seeing him in this role, I guess, because usually he's portraying all of these American heroes. But just something about the cadence of his voice, it's like he sort of tacks on the accent to the end of whatever phrase he's saying. He rolls an occasional R and -hmm. and adds comrade to the end of things here and there. And that's kind of it. It's so rough. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, you know how Harrison Ford talks. That is how he talks in this movie. And here, I know that I'm sure he did put in effort to do the accent the whole time. It just doesn't do it for me. No, it's basically, you know, if the guy from The Fugitive had a couple of Russian lessons, I didn't kill my wife, comrade. It's it's (laughs) that. that Mm-hmm. You yeah. nailed it. That's 100% it. And it's honestly like in a two hour and what, 18 minute movie, uh, it's hard to get over. Like, I think eventually I just sort of was like, I just have to accept this. But especially like beginning, middle of the movie, it will take you out of a scene. I can't express to you how long it took me to get over, not just his accent, by the way, his accent. We are not the only ones making fun of this. Okay. This is not a new thing. Harrison Ford won an award for this accent. He won the Stinker Award for Worst Fake Accent Male for K-19 The Widowmaker. Heartily earned. Harrison Ford, good job (laughs) for that. But Harrison Ford's accent, as bad as it is, is not so different from the terrible accent that Liam Neeson is attempting. Oh, I would say that you give Liam Neeson maybe like gosh, like a half grade higher. Like if Harrison Ford's accent is an F, Liam Neeson got like a D minus and barely got that. (sighs) You, okay, it is an American movie. They did cast American and British actors. I'm not going to get so bent out of shape about that part because they cast Sean Connery as a Russian submarine captain in Hunt for Red October. He's, you know, what, Vladivostok by way of, of Edinburgh. But 
at least with him, there was a quality about that voice that made it interesting. And so you maybe you kind of mm -hmm. bought it as a thing. They surrounded him with lots of British dudes. And so you think, oh, okay, maybe it works. In this instance, no, it didn't work. The the American guy trying to speak, you know, very vague Russian, just it's not good. These accents are to Russian what Dick Van Dyke's accent in Mary Poppins <laughs> oh, no. are to British accents. Yes. I did have one thing, which is kind of like a big note that I found to be subpar, which is just the character development in this film, I don't even know if this is the time to bring it up, but I didn't know anyone's, like we've listed a lot of actors and their names, which is they deserve credit. I didn't know anyone's names except for the main, maybe the main two actors for the majority of the film. I just referred to some of them as like the new guy, the hot one, like all of these things, because I was just <laughs> like, listen, there's Liam Neeson, there's Harrison Ford, and then there's everyone else who we haven't gotten a single minute with to understand them, except I know one of them has a fiance. I am so happy that you brought that up because I felt like as I'm watching this movie, you know, I'm trying to take notes as I'm watching this movie and feel, and I felt all the way through, like, am I not paying attention? Am I face blind to Russians? Like, I I don't, I don't understand who is who here, and it's absolutely true. You have a lot of very different actors, and I recognize the big ones, but after that, they all do sort of blend together. They really do. And it's so interesting because I feel like they're so focused on setting up like foreshadowing after foreshadowing after foreshadowing about the submarine that we barely ever get two people just talking to each other. Like we yeah. don't get any of those human moments that I feel like will really connect me to this story. You get two. You get two pairs of them. You get Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson and you get Vadim and Pavel. And, be oh, yeah. and beyond that, not really. It's just you guys running also, around the sub. There was like one guy who brings a rat and I felt like that was the most human moment I had was when this guy was treating his pet, who's not a human, with affection. And it's just like, there's a lot of plot. There's a lot to dig into. Like, I love the cinematography, but I just did not care about the care. I had no idea what their motivation was. Yeah. I had no, I had no idea why Harrison Ford was having you like dive and then break through the ice. And just like, there was so many turns and things that characters did that I felt like I, as the audience member was like, well, this is emotional whiplash because I have not been brought along. I completely agree with everything that you were saying. As far as having these sort of less than wonderful things about them, K-19, you have my award for recent movies that I have seen holding that much weight of, of things that just sort of fall below acceptable. Maybe we should move on and start talking about the plot that we do enjoy. Let's uh, do it. Let's do it. We pick back up as the submarine has broken the ice and they've launched the missile and everybody is now out on the ice and happy. They've had this near-death experience, kind of, and now everybody is out on the ice. We're playing soccer, you know, we're we're taking photos. You always know when, when you know, people take a photo in a movie like this, that's not great. Don't take the happy, smiling photo that's going to come back later, uh, you know, in, in the obituary. But um, everybody's out playing. And... Alexi, walking through, I guess, the nuclear area, catches Vadim, who has now, sort of like Pavel, started to become concerned about the newt gauges. Which I feel like is another mark of his inexperience, that it took him like twice as long as Pavel to notice that something's wrong on these dials and gauges, that even though we, the audience, don't know what they are. He needed time to read the syllabus. He had to get through the syllabus first. <laughs> 
But yeah, I mean, at this point in the movie, I did have this moment because we don't see a lot of Harrison Ford's internal motivation explained to anyone. I mean, he doesn't really have any friends on board that I was like, is he some sort of manipulative genius? Like he takes everyone through this adrenaline filled experience of near death and then this like victory of launching this missile. And then everybody is happy. Of course, not for very long because something's wrong with the nuclear reactor. Not not good. And we know as an audience that, you know, obviously things are not going well with the reactor because tap tap on the gauge by Pavel, tap tap on the gauge by Vadim. And we know we're heading somewhere, but the place that Alexei knows that they are heading is a new assignment. And that new assignment from Moscow says, okay, you're going to take K-19, this awesome sub that just launched the missile. You're going to head to the U.S. Eastern Seaboard. You're going to park it uh, somewhere between Washington, D.C. and New York. And that's what you're going to go do now. So head that way. Demichev, so if you remember Demichev, who was the, the missile officer on the boat, he tells Polonin that Polonin is the only captain that the men trust in this moment. So before we take off on this big mission, we have this other visit to, hey, there are two camps aboard this ship, and Demichev seems to be at the head of one of those two camps. And at this point, you know, we've had at least two different people come and tell Polonin that he has their loyalty. He's not, like, asking them to do this, but, you know, we're really hitting home the fact that, like, the men are behind you, like, they're loyal to you, and we're gonna hit it at least twice. Story-wise, we find ourselves at an interesting moment. We have set up a rivalry between two captains aboard a submarine, although one of them is not necessarily participating in that rivalry, but his men are. And so we're, we're setting up those two camps. We are at a place to where a submarine, uh, the biggest, baddest submarine, has launched its missile, done its thing, and has now been ordered to go towards the United States, go park off the U.S. We are in a moment where everybody is in a moment of celebration, They've been playing soccer on the ice. They're drinking red wine and and you get which by the way, you get this lovely line when everybody's having their wine with dinner. You only get one you only get one cup of wine, but it's good. You should definitely drink it because it takes away strontium or it adds it. Something good. Which, it's so funny that moment because it's so celebratory and you're like, maybe they're having the wine to celebrate. And they're like, no, 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 the wine has something to do something, something to do with nuclear things. Well, you know, maybe we'll see more of that later. Yeah. The next time I crack a bottle of red, I'm just going to claim that I'm just trying to add or remove strontium. I'm, I'm really doing it for my health. Um, but we do have a little red wine that's added. There's some dancing. We're, we're having a great time. That seems like the perfect time in a story to introduce the big bad thing that's going to happen. And that comes in the form of a leak. It's interesting. We sort of travel from this joyous moment through the ship to the reactor. And we see that there's one of the seals has come loose and this alarm sounds. And of course, the nuclear reactor team, which is at this time, they do it in shifts. And this shift, uh, Pavel, the attractive one, is still on uh, duty. And Vadim, our nuclear reactor officer, are both checking it and they're losing pressure and the control rods are dropping. The auxiliary pumps are failing. Everything that they've built up to is finally coming to a fruition in this disastrous moment. If you haven't had experience, I guess, movie-wise, you wouldn't necessarily have it in real life, but if you haven't had experience movie-wise with kind of how a nuclear meltdown starts, this is how it starts which is that there is some sort of loss in pressure or there's some sort of loss in coolant. And the reason that the rods are dropping is because that's how a nuclear reaction is kept in check, is that you drop these control rods that stop the atoms from doing what atoms do and getting excited. 
And, and so that's what the boat is trying to do automatically is to what you call scramming and it's dropping these control rods and keeping things from essentially melting down and blowing up. The problem as all of the guys who work in this department know, it's happening too quickly for really anyone to do anything about it. So the monster has been loosed and it's not quite clear to everybody that it's unstoppable, but it might be unstoppable. Oh yeah, and they mentioned that it is in a section that is sealed, so they can't get to the part that is broken. That seems like a great idea. Let's uh, the the thing that if it breaks can can cause a nuclear meltdown. Let's seal that off so that no one can get to it. Wonderful idea. Alexi, when he finds out that oh we've got this giant problem on the on our giant boat, he reverts to exactly what the party had done to Polanin before, and he tells Polanin, "I want a name." Whose fault is this? And again, Polanin takes this position of it's the captain's fault. And in this moment, bud, you're the captain. He's like, it's your name. Like, who are you looking for for this failure? I'm the one who's told you everything was pushed too quickly. Like, you are responsible for anything that happens on this boat. And it's sort of like another subtle allusion to this theme of like, what is duty? You know, who is our duty to? Because Alexi, again, has this political perspective of someone is responsible for this. And Polenin is saying like, you as the captain are responsible for everyone. But they don't really have time to, you know, get too far into it because they have only like three or four hours. And if the temperature of the nuclear reactor rises to a thousand degrees no one really knows what will happen but it will definitely be some sort of nuclear meltdown and it's going to be catastrophic it's not good and Vadim is given this moment in the film to really just walk us the audience by way of walking alexi through this and saying look you've got a leak i can't get to it the temperature is going to continue to rise we cannot stop that when it gets to a thousand degrees a meltdown is going to happen and you got about three or four hours before that happens. And Alexi's response to being walked through this is, that's your job. You solve it. Oh, yeah. Very helpful. I very also helpful. love, I don't know the science on this, so maybe you can illuminate this for me. You know how some people have like this time clock? They have this like temperature clock where it's sort of like a thousand degrees. That's meltdown. So, you know, we're going to gradually gauge danger by gauging how close to a thousand degrees we are. I, I won't call it a twist, but it's an interesting turn on another submarine movie trope, the depth gauge. So, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about Hull Crushed Depth earlier. You know, in, in other movies, they are diving to certain places, and the thing that you have to keep tabs on is how deep you're going so that you don't go too deep or else you die. The other is how close is the torpedo that is coming towards us? You don't want it to get too close or else you die. And so this is another one of those, essentially a ticking clock moment, which is don't let the temperature get to a thousand or else you die. It is a little bit unique too, because he does have this moment where he's like, nobody knows what happens if you're at a thousand degrees. And it's, I feel like it's, it's a truthful moment, but it does undercut things just a little bit because he's like, then they have to come back and sort of reaffirm. They have this moment where the officers and Polenin and, you know, Vadim obviously are debating what to do. And they sort of ask him again, what the consequences are. And he's like, Hiroshima, but bigger, yeah. essentially. And it's a uh, rolling back to that fun fact from earlier. The Widowmaker was not the nickname of a submarine. The submarine did not have any nickname until the nuclear issues in which case the nickname of the submarine was actually Hiroshima. Right. Which is also not what you want your submarine nicknamed. No, nope, very bad. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> and and so so at that moment, they've got, what, three or four hours to figure out what to do. So you've got Polanin and everybody else tucked into the, the officer's mess or wherever they are and trying to figure out what to do, which it's very Apollo 13, right? They're sitting there and they're figuring out, okay, we only have what we have on board. What can we use or do or think about or approach differently to solve this problem? And what they come up with is actually a pretty good idea, pretty 
pretty ingenious idea, which is, well, you know, we're on a boat with a bunch of people and all those people drink water. And so we've got 30 tons of fresh water on this boat. What if we take that water and find a way to put it into the reactor to replace the water, seal the leak, find a way to seal the leak, and then put that water back in to see if we can get this sucker to cool down and get it to go the other direction from a thousand degrees. It is simultaneously so convenient and yet... It, it's so difficult that moment when they're just like, oh yeah, well, the coolant is just distilled water. We've got plenty of water. And as a viewer, they never address the fact that people need the drinking water. You know, <laughs> I, I just love that they're like, I mean, admittedly, it's a more pressing situation, but they're just like, we can fix it if we use all of our drinking water. And I'm like, wait a second, after we do that, are we all going to die of dehydration? Nah, just don't but flush you know, the toilets. There's the ocean around, there's water, you know, but I, at any rate, they do, everyone's looking at schematics. They come up with this plan and there's, there's definitely some dissent amongst the ranks about whether or not they should fix the reactor or just abandon ship. And Demichev is the first in line to say, look, you know, what we need to be doing is we need to scuttle the boat. We need to just sink this sucker and get out of here and evacuate. And Alexei's like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, I'm not going to be the person who loses this boat. I'm going to be the person that saves it. We got it. We got to contact command. We got to let them know what's going on. They can't do that because of Alexei's previous move of crashing through the ice. He broke the antenna. So they are really left with this option of fix the leak, fill it with water. This, you know, heavy ticking clock, they have to get pipes from torpedoes to be able to have good enough pipe that's strong enough to pump all this water. And, you know, they they have to fix it before, obviously, nuclear meltdown happens. And the way that they decide that they're going to do this is with the, the guys that work in this department. They are going to break into teams. I think it's two or three people apiece. And they are going to go in for a limited amount of time, what they determine is a limited amount of time, and work on fixing the leak. And then they're going to swap out for a new team. And then they're going to swap out for a new team. And the exposure they hope to the radiation that's in there is low enough that it's not going to kill them. And the problem with that, there's a couple of problems, but the problem with that is number one, going near the radiation period is not great. Um, two is that this being a boat that is falling apart and put together by the Soviet Union and all the other problems that we've had, one of the additional problems is there are no radiation suits aboard this boat like there are supposed to be. They've only given them chemical suits, which have no effect whatsoever. Because of course, of course they don't have radiation suits. You know, after all, they don't have the right drugs. They've got a doctor who gets seasick. You know, their other doctor got ran over by a truck. Things leaking. They almost crushed the ship. And also they don't have radiation suits. And the line in the movie is actually, I think, very well written. There's this line where they're like, they might as well be wearing raincoats. Like these are yes. so useless. And of course, Pavel, who first was the one tapping on the gauge, is the one who volunteers to be the first one to inspect the leak. And this is honestly the first of what I feel like the movie does this interesting thing. In talking about duty, they're also talking about responsibility. And they have this thing where they almost use radiation or the boat breaking as this sort of like cosmic justice for your actions. Like Pavel didn't say anything when he noticed that the gauge was wrong. He was like, oh, you know, I'm not going to report it. Maybe it's okay. And so he has to own up to his mistake and take responsibility towards his comrades and, and go first, wearing this raincoat of a chemical suit and, and try and repair the reactor. And I can't tell, honestly, whether any of the men going in to fix this reactor understand that those chemical suits do nothing. I think all of them think they are radiation suits. 
mm-hmm. because everybody right. wants to put it on. Everybody puts on the suit. Everybody goes through the motions, but they're they're going in with nothing. And like you said, Pavel uh, volunteers for this first team. If nothing else, uh, he has guts and mm-hmm. and volunteers to go in and do this. And off he goes, right? Puts on the suit, gets with his buddy, and they have this moment of sort of like unsealing, you know, the crypt where the monster is living and mm-hmm. being placed inside and then sealed inside as the people on the outside, you know, close the wheel. And you know in the instant that they step into that, that's it. They're walking toward almost, if not certain death. And off they go. One of my big criticisms of the film is that they just kill the attractive people. And also the fact that we like, what I've said earlier about the character development, someone else volunteers with Pavel, who is also this, you know, nice young man. And they go in to face certain death. And I feel like we don't necessarily know everyone who's going in. Like we're attached to Pavel. We know that the nuclear officer Vadim is going to go in last to inspect the league. Yeah. But there's definitely some some sort of unnamed people or unknown faces who go in with them. And you're like, these men are walking into certain death and they may not come out alive. Right. This is where I step back from this movie for a second and say, I was, and maybe I'll expand upon this in a minute, but I was hesitant to see this movie when it first came out. And so I didn't. And when I started watching this movie from the beginning, the beginning was slow. And even though it was, you know, interesting in parts, there were just kind of some hokey things going on and the accents and the whatever. And in the beginning of the movie, I couldn't get into it. And it was like, this movie is taking forever. And then we dove the boat and we had that whole action sequence where things were happening and they were kind of crazy and they were not necessarily motivated. And it was just weird. And I was like, "Eh, I don't know if I'm going to dig on this movie. And it's at this moment where the movie grabbed me Mm. and it became the movie that I honestly didn't expect it to be a film with a legitimate real feeling danger Mm -hmm. and a problem solution logic that I could follow with a really good ticking clock and what it reminded me of including and maybe especially so in just the vibe and the feel in the moment of walking into the reactor to do this was it felt so much like that HBO series Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. I was watching this with my roommate. She also made the Chernobyl comparison and it's I, I simultaneously agree and disagree because I feel like yes this moment was probably the more powerful part of the movie that does draw you in like it has I think it's honestly because of what we talked about earlier, like the stakes earlier in the movie are not as motivated. And then we get here and they feel like very real stakes that we can understand. And at the same time, I think uh, one of the reasons I've commented on people's appearance is because I just don't know these characters and I don't know all their names. And it's like the movie here does grab me and I have a sense of like how real and present this dangerous situation is. And at the same time, I feel like personally to me as someone development like if i cared more about these characters it would have hit me even harder yeah i totally get that and what saves the moment is that at least one of the two people in each of these groups that are going Mm -hmm. in we at least have some exposure to and some care even if we don't know the buddy yeah and that's true yeah and so so pavel's walking in with ensign number two or whatever that comes in with him and they enter this, you know, there's there's water on the ground, which you know is radioactive water. And it's oh, yeah. glowing, you know, which is never good for water. And there, you can bad. see the leak. And they're going in there with like flaming cutting torches, which maybe that's not a good thing to have near explosive material. But they're doing it. And so you do get this really tense sequence where Pavel, and I think it's Anatoly, uh, is who goes in with him. They have to shear off this pipe where the leak is and then feed the other one in so that they can feed the, the fresh water in. As 
as they are doing that, the temperature continues to rise, right? Mm -hmm. And they can only be in there for so long. They're in there for as long as they can. Um, they have these hoods on, so we can't really see what's going on under the hoods. We just know that they are working. And finally, their time is up. They open the door and we get our first look at Pavel and Anatoly. It's shocking. They are just reddened and burned from this radiation. Anatoly vomits immediately. They can't stand up. It is honestly one of the most powerful parts of the film also because we're seeing this in part from the perspective of Vadim, the nuclear reactor officer, who has to go in last. And everyone up until this moment has believed that the chemical suits are going to help them and they can go in, stay for 10 minutes, get out. And this is the moment where it's revealed to everyone. And the second team goes in as the first team comes out. They don't really get to see them like take off the masks so you just you see it from the perspective of the people who have to go in third that this is what is going to happen to them like they are also going to come out completely destroyed by this radiation that to me is the part that i think works really well is by seeing it from the perspective of those who are going to have to do this so when mm -hmm. right so when pavel and anatoly went in they didn't realize this is what would happen when they came out like you said second team there there's kind of a you know, we see that they're not in great shape, but second team has to go in immediately. So there's not a lot of time to take in what has happened to first team. But third team, which is Vodum, sits there and looks at everything that has happened and knows that in a few minutes time, that's what's going to happen to them. And there's something really powerful about that. Oh, definitely. And I also think I kind of want to applaud this film because I feel like a lot of films that put people in this tense situation do what you mentioned, which is they design everything so you can see everyone's faces. Yeah. So the actors can emote. And this film, everyone's putting on these masks as a part of the chemical suits. And so what we're privy to is people like wiping the condensation off of, you know, the small eye holes, or they're very clearly like welding and trying to like sway as they try to stand up, but they don't try to give us as many views of people's faces because we already have a sense of how tense and how powerful this moment is and what the consequences are going to be. We don't need the actors to sell that to us. The face mask comes off. We see how bad Pavel, who has been our male model up to this point, uh, has, <laughs> has become. Vadim knows that he his turn is coming for this and Vadim loses it. He panics. He can't deal with the fact that this is what's coming for him. And even though it is his turn to put on the suit and get ready because second crew comes out just as bad, definitely dying, definitely having problems and Vadim just can't deal with it. It's a cowardly moment, mm -hmm. but it's a very human moment, mm -hmm. but it's a very unhelpful moment for Vadim. So there's a lot going on there because it, he just can't not do it. And I think we're reminded too that he's the kid fresh out of school. Like yeah. he's supposed to, he has this fiance he wants to go home to. He's got, you know, no experience at sea and everyone else here has served before and understands the consequences and they're willing to risk their lives for everyone else. And Vadim has this, you're right, it's interesting because you kind of want to hate him, but you know, like at least I do watching this movie that I would have a similar reaction. This is serious. You go in, you probably are not going to come out the same or even potentially live very long afterwards. And it is one of those people who looks at least like they have had their time at sea, which is the chief engineer um, by the name of Gorolov, who says, all right, the hell with it. You know, you're going to cower in the corner. I'm going to go. And he puts on the uniform, understanding himself what he's walking into, but he puts on the uniform and goes in with third crew. 
Well, yeah, and they don't they don't have time. I mean, the temperature is rising to over 900 degrees. They're at like 925. Uh, Alexi Harrison Ford asks an officer to start taking radiation readings from all compartments. They're, they're in this sort of weird position where they don't want to frighten everyone, but everything is incredibly serious. It's the sort of pulling aside of this officer who basically to this point we've only seen as the guy who delivers his tea. Um, and he says, uh, you know, when you're done delivering my tea, go take radiation readings. Okay, Captain, no problem. Yeah, do it in all the compartments, not just the one in the back. Ah, okay, Captain. And off he goes on his secret mission to uh, do that. While he is doing that, like you said, temperature is rising. We're getting so much closer to 1,000 degrees. We're at 925 or something. And that third crew that included Gorilev comes out of the chamber dying. And all that's left there really is Vadim, who has seen all of these people who have gone before. He's scared. He's guilty. He's Mm -hmm. everything. Right as that third crew is exiting, we should probably mention, too, that Mm -hmm. that Gorilev, the chief engineer who went in in Vadim's place comes out he's as bad as everybody else but insists on walking himself to the doctor he's burned he's falling down he's dying but walks past Vadim and sort Mm -hmm. of proves what character is which I think is going to come in handy for Vadim later he has pride Vadim doesn't and so we've got a boat that's slowly poisoning everybody we've got a boat that's getting closer to blowing up and so we need to do something and Mm -hmm. Polonin suggests you know we might consider getting help from the Americans Alexi, who earlier in the movie was also saying, you know, I'm not going to be the person who lets this boat sink. I'm not going to be the person who does this. I'm not going to be the person who surrenders to the Americans. And uh, he thinks the fleet's going to find him. Oh, yeah. They've mentioned, you know, they're close enough to a NATO base. There's an American destroyer nearby. They could get this help. And at the same time, you know, Alexi, again, just has pride. And he tells everyone to, you know, sit topside and shift, stay far away from the radiation levels. Like they're doing preventative measures, but there's nothing that is going to solve their problem. And while you've got this submarine that's sitting on the surface with all of its sailors, you know, sitting out on the deck, which has got to be fun, by the way, sitting on the deck of a submarine as it's out there. Maybe it's fun. I don't know. But it kind of looked kind of cool. But everybody's hanging out on the deck. And it's right that moment that a U.S. destroyer pulls up alongside. Hey, look, there's Russian submarine sends out a U.S. Navy helicopter to go take some pictures of everybody, which they decide in their wisdom to moon uh, from the top of the submarine. And uh, at that point, the U.S. is offering assistance to the boat. Before it was suggested maybe we should seek it from the Americans. Now the Americans are actively offering assistance to what seems to be a submarine in trouble. And Alexi still won't budge. Oh, yeah. It's at this moment that I think everything that we have set up, admittedly, in a somewhat long-winded way, but set up about, you know, the potential struggles in leadership and sort of Alexi's pride and everything comes to a head because Neeson, Polenin, wants to give up, wants to ask the U.S. for help. And the doctor who's the base doctor breaks down he doesn't know what what, anything about radiation he's giving the men aspirin and uh, Alexi tells him to just tell the men that they're getting better. Whereas we were sort of setting up these different camps earlier in the movie, this is the moment where that pays off, which is Dimitrov. Remember the guy that was saying, hey, my loyalty is to you, uh, Liam Neeson. This is Dimitrov telling Suslov that as political officer, reminding Suslov, hey, you're political officer, you have the authority to authorize a change of command. You can say who gets to command this boat because you, as far as Moscow is concerned, uh, have been deemed... Uh, 
worthy of doing that, just so you know. And oh, it's definitely telling the audience as well in this moment because we've heard the term political officer throughout the film, but I didn't know that he could change who's in charge. I guess it makes sense, though. He has the ideals of the party in mind as the right. political officer. Right. And as, as Alexi has even shown, you know, what the party wants is what comes first, even in moments where it doesn't necessarily make sense. And of course, of course, in this moment of chaos when these men have risked and, you know, we'll see, but maybe lost their lives to this uh, save this boat, that the reactor weld that is holding everything together can't possibly just be enough, no. right? It's well, gone. It yeah, it dies. It's, it's <laughs> you know, you, you weld it, you do as best as you can while you're dying. But unfortunately, the weld fails. And what happens when welds fail in a nuclear reactor? The temperature starts to rise again. Mm -hmm. Again, it's this thing where I feel like they use things breaking or radiation as this sort of like way, this mechanism of showing this theme of duty or responsibility because Vadim, who refused to enter the reactor, who had this coward's moment, has to take responsibility for his actions because he was the one who was supposed to inspect the weld. That was his job as the nuclear reactor officer. And so now that it's failed, he prepares to enter the reactor himself and do what he refused to do in the first place. And he's doing that at the exact same time as the boat and everybody in it are starting to come apart in a lot of ways. So you, you've got an indication of that. They've, they've already said, no, thank you, Americans, and we're going to dive the boat. Um, but as they're clearing the decks and, and diving, there's a sailor that just refuses. He can't, I will not go down there anymore. I'm going to swim to the destroyer and jumps off the submarine to probably certain death. Like he's, there's no way he's going to swim and make it all the way over there. So you've got people sort of losing it in that way. You've got Demichev, who is asking the the son uh, sorry the radio operator Kornilov to sort of break Alexei's orders. Check the radio again. Are the Americans there? Are they still you know offering to do things? There is a panic on board happening. Uh, where a fuel bucket gets spilled. There's an electrical fire that starts. People are caught in flames. There's chaos that's going on at this point whenever Vadim is preparing to enter the reactor. And at that moment, unlike earlier... He seems to be the calm and focused one. What's interesting, too, is they're trying to deal with this electrical fire, and that's the first thing in their mind. And, you know, Alexi, of course, orders the fire suppression system turned on. But if that gets turned on, the men inside are going to die. Yeah. And Liam Neeson, Pelennin, is like, please don't do that. Don't kill the men. Give the fire crews time. And all of this is occurring before they deal with the reactor. And so we get the sense that Vadim has decided on his own that he has to fix it. He hasn't actually received orders from anyone. He's going to go in and do it himself because he knows this is his responsibility. Exactly, which gives a redeeming moment, at least in terms of, I guess, a start of a redemption mm -hmm. for, for Vadim in the eyes of the audience, sort of making that determination on his own. In the meantime, you've got, like you said, Alexei and Polonin sort of arguing about what to do about this fire. Polonin saying, I swear to you, if you push this button and turn on the fire suppression, system and kill all those men, I will surrender to the Americans. Give the fire team time. And Alexi is convinced into that for the time being, okay, just tell them to do it quickly. Plenin agrees, like, I will, you know, try and let them fix it. And if it gets too bad, I will turn it on myself. So he leaves the bridge and Alexi, who stays there, turns around. Demichev has Chekhov's gun has him at gunpoint. Yeah, remember remember earlier when Demichev kind of opened that door and took out a gun <laughs> and you weren't quite sure where that was going to come up? This is where that comes up. 
and what happens in that moment. Suslov pays off what Demichev had told him earlier and says, Captain, as political officer of this boat, I relieve you of duty. Meanwhile, Vadim is trying to fix a nuclear reactor. So yeah, the whole time. Going on. Yeah, there's a, uh, a mutiny at sea uh, happening. Again, again, echoes of Crimson Tide, I guess, and also Run Silent, Run Deep. These lovely tropes of submarine movies are, are happening. Um, Vadim's trying to get the weld under control so that everybody doesn't die. The fire team is trying to get the fire under control so that everybody doesn't die. And as part of this mutiny that's happening, Demichev tells his radio guy, Kornilov, radio the Americans. We're going to need that help. So much going on. (laughs) We'll talk (laughs) to you again in a minute. You're listening to Subgenre. If you've listened to other podcasts, and really by this point, we're going to assume you have, then you've probably heard our name, Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and creative video. We produce the shows you can't wait to binge, like the acclaimed Art Curious podcast. And of course, this thing, can we call it a show? Oh, sure we can. Subgenre. But did you know we're also available to creatively consult on your podcast too? That's right. We're here to turn your hobby into a professional-grade production that sounds just like the storytelling, discussion, or investigative podcast you download, all with help from our award-winning team. Treat your show seriously and get noticed with help from Kabunki. Mention this ad to get 10% off your first consultation. Find out more at kabonki.com. That's kabunki.com. Kabunki. Com. Kabunki. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. This is Subgenre. We are talking about K-19, The Widowmaker. I am here with Mary Thurman. We left off in the last part of the show with Demichev ordering Kornilov to radio the Americans and say, hey, you know that help you were offering us? Yeah, we'll take that. We leave it there in this feeling of maybe hope, maybe dread. I'm not quite sure how we. it's meant to be left there at the end, but we are taken away from the boat for the first time uh, in a really long time, and we are thrown back into Moscow. And in Moscow, you have the Admiral, Admiral Bratyev, who was the person who I think had suggested Alexei in the first place, um, who is played by a stage actor, film actor named John Shrapnel. You might recognize the last name from the gentleman before Lex Shrapnel, who is also in the film. Just such a good last name. I know. I wish I had that sharp of a last name. That sharp (laughs) of a last name. (laughs) Admiral Bratyev is being raked over the coals in Moscow. And they're like, you suggested this guy. Like, what is going on? Bratyev says, I would trust Alexei with everything in the fleet and, you know, Yas Auckland in his deep voice is there with the KGB and says, oh yeah, really? You trust him with everything? Well, a reconnaissance plane has seen an American destroyer shadowing this boat. The implication being that Alexei is doing something untoward with the Americans. It's very funny to me how there's a lot of tension in the high command about like, there's a destroyer nearby and the Americans just come and take pictures of the Russians mooning them. And the tension is just very different in the high command than it is, I suppose, anytime the Americans actually show up. Part of that too, I kind of attribute maybe to, you know, the Soviets being very very image conscious Mm -hmm. and having a secretive nature 
even though this is a boat that they themselves said they wanted the Americans to see and notice and all that, but they wanted the Americans to see it in a position of strength. And right now it's seeing it in a position of weakness and that can't be tolerated. And there's also this implication, right? That Alexei's father was, was very loyal in the revolution, but died in the gulag. And there's this implication amongst the, the high command that Alexei maybe takes after his father. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much there for the character that I really wish we could have accessed because it feels like there's a lot of complexity there that's touched on, but obviously there's a nuclear reactor and that's going to take precedence. Yes, it as it as maybe it should. Don't forget, Polonin was off fighting the fire while all this other stuff has been going on. He returns to the bridge at right about this point to find out, surprise, uh, there's been a mutiny and... Uh, <laughs> It's in your favor, and you are now in command of the boat. And so he and this, you know, this Demichev and Suslov standing there with uh, Alexei at gunpoint and say, hey, look what we did. And Polonin's like, dope, guys, that's great. Um, why don't you hand me your guns and your handcuff keys? Because we're all family here. Ah, come on, give, a, give, a, give me the guns and handcuff keys. We're, let's do it. We're, we're all together on this. I feel like the performance here from Neeson is really... It, it's it's well done because we do get a sense that he's not completely on their side. He's testing them and testing their trust in him in that moment where he says, we're a family, guns don't belong in a family, like give me the handcuff keys and the gun. Right. And then in what I would describe as a completely unmotivated turn of events, uh, <laughs> Neeson, who has not agreed at all with Harrison Ford, turns the gun on these men who are loyal to him and frees Alexi and says, essentially, no place for a mutiny in a family and just gives the entire bridge back over to Harrison Ford. Yeah. It is both noble on his part, because I think the logic is whether or not it would have been better for me to command the boat, it is completely improper for you to give me command this way. But you're right, in any other way, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, because he's been totally yelling at Alexei this entire time going, dude, you're killing us all, what the hell? And this is the moment for that to stop, but he doesn't. It's also like they've set Paul Lennon up as a realist, and this moment makes him seem like an idealist. They've set him up as like, oh, my crew comes first, you know, I care about the people. Alexi's going to try and kill them with the fire suppression system or maybe crushing the boat or the 12 other ways he's almost killed us. And then, you know, he has this moment to take over and sort of achieve his ideals of saving everyone's lives. And you're right. I think they play it off as a sense of like he has this code and yet it sort of, to me, goes against the characterization they've done earlier in the film, which is like realism has to be the key to what we are doing. And the leadership that has happened so far has been at the detriment of my men. Yeah, but two breaths away from that coming up, Liam Neeson turns on Demichev and Suslov and tells them, you know, there's you're under arrest, right? You can't do mm -hmm. this. You're under arrest. You're locked in your in your rooms and gives command back to Alexei. Alexei says, thanks. Alexei knows that they've got to dive the boat before it explodes because this thing is a giant bomb. If you leave it on the surface and it goes off, it destroys the American destroyer. And if you blow up an American ship, even accidentally, Incidentally, you might start World War III, everybody dies. And so they've got to dive this boat. If they dive the boat, what they are committing to is blowing themselves up to sacrifice themselves to keep World War III from happening. And Polonin in this moment then kind of turns back into Polonin and mm -hmm. says, if you're going to order everybody to do it, don't order them. Ask them. These are the men and they will respond if you treat them like men. 
I have no sense of, you know, the motivation of giving Alexi leadership again, but the moment in which he explains that if they stay on the surface and if they don't die, if they don't sacrifice themselves, then they might cause attacks on the motherland. Like he has this motivation where he wants to keep the Soviet Union safe. He needs to have the interests of the party at hand. And if that means his death and the death of the entire crew, he wants to be willing to sacrifice that for the sake of the entire Soviet Union. That made total sense as a character moment because Alexei as a character has always put the Soviet Union first. And then we get this very interesting moment where Polanin teaches him almost leadership, where he says, you know, the crew will be loyal to you if you have trust in them. Don't treat them as cogs. You treat them as people. You treat them as comrades. And there's this what I would say is arguably, aside from maybe seeing the men walking out of the reactor, one of the most powerful moments in the film where he actually asks the crew for their, almost like their choice. He explains it to them and says he's standing by and waits for their response. And we get that response one compartment at a time. Yeah. And every compartment chooses to dive. It's an imperfect comparison, but it's a bit of an I am Spartacus moment, right? Where mm-hmm. where everybody everybody is sort of stepping up and going, yes, I am, I am, I am ready, I am ready. Um, we're all in this together. So, okay, Alexi has learned how to be a captain. But, but, has anybody seen Vadim recently? Anybody? How's that reactor going? How's that reactor <laughs> What's going on? Oh, he's Alexi. I guess it's Alexi actually goes down to the compartment and says, uh, yeah, bottom, that guy. Where's that guy? How's that leak going? Oh, he's inside working on it. How long has he been in there? Uh, 18 minutes. How long are you supposed to be in there? 10 minutes. And so Alexi is flabbergasted that Vadim is in there, knows that Vadim is, you know, essentially donezo, but very worried after him. And does a captainy thing, I guess, in in this moment, like there, he he does a he does an interesting heroic thing. Vadim, who originally chickened out of going into the reactor, has gone in. He's been in there almost twice as long as anyone who's come out vomiting and burned and you know doomed essentially. And Alexi goes in after him without any protective equipment. He's basically like the interns in there, and I got to get him out. And also, he probably knows that the chemical suits are worthless. Right. But Alexi gets. Vodim out and the temperature does start falling. Vodim has made himself into a hero. He has single-handedly fixed the weld and Alexei going against his earlier orders orders that they contact the Americans and request their help now that they know they're not going to blow the Americans up and start World War III. See, okay. In this moment where I watched Alexei get so concerned about Vadim that he walks into the lair Mm -hmm. with nothing on and kind of rescues this guy and takes him out. Am I alone in that moment thinking, oh, Vadim is his son? Oh, that's interesting. And maybe that's my Hollywood brain going. But in that moment, I thought it's the new guy that he brought on. There's no reason why we should have brought the new guy onto the boat that was inexperienced. The logic wasn't there. And all of a sudden, for me in my brain, the logic went, oh, the reason he brought it on is that's his kid. I didn't necessarily think of him as his son, but there is precedence in the movie for that assumption because there's a moment or or a couple moments in which they describe to Polanin that the crew is a family, right? Right. And there's at least one moment in which Polanin, or I don't remember if it was someone else, but basically it describes like the crew is a family, the captain is the father. And so that that metaphor is there. You're yeah. not bringing that out of nowhere. I wonder if that was in a draft. Maybe. It's... I don't know. I'm glad it came out. If it was in a draft, 
I'm glad it came out. If it was never in a draft, it should have been a draft. You, what are you people doing? And then take it out later. But uh, it, it was it was sitting there waiting for the plucking. It's but- also just like there's this. They've created such a big character turnaround in like the course of like five minutes right. where Alexi learns the meaning of leadership and suddenly is willing to risk himself for his crew as opposed to like risking his entire crew for the state. And so I feel like this is supposed to be a demonstrative moment where he goes in without protective gear because he values the life of the man who's in there. And at the same time, you're right. I think it would almost make more sense to me if he was his son. <laughs> Either way, either way, he's not his son. He's not, spoiler alert, he's not his son. But no, no th- relation. That we know of, that we know of. But he sees that this is the moment finally for him as captain to do the right thing. And that right thing is to call the Americans. It's to request help. It's to abandon the boat, get all these guys who he has suddenly learned to care about as people off of this boat. This is the moment. And oh, yeah. right that moment, there is a new sonar contact. Gosh, I keep harping on this idea of like the reactor as this place of transformation or justice. But as soon as Alexi like comes to terms with the fact that he needs to change his leadership or style, he has to go into the reactor again and almost be like transformed like everyone who's gone there to face the consequences of their actions and, you know, comes out like a new man. But yes, there's a new sonar contact and maybe, just maybe, there might be a solution other than the Americans. There may be. And that solution maybe turns up in the form of another Soviet sub. Another Soviet sub has found them. They are here. Oh, good. That means that we can take the crew and put them from the irradiated nuclear sub and put them on a good sub and everyone can get out of there. Well, no, we can't. Because Moscow, in all of their wisdom has said, no, this submarine is going to tow the K-19 back and we'll fix it there. Everybody stay on board. And in the meantime, just make sure that you, quote, give the men plenty of fresh fruit. This movie is so interesting because it simultaneously is about loyalty. Like Alexi is ready to go down with the ship. If they have to ask the Americans for help, he is putting on his dress uniform. He is ready to go down with the boat so they don't get the Soviet technology. And at the same time, the Soviet brass have just abandoned them because they know that, you know, radiation will kill the men on board, but they are telling them, you know, request denied, stay on the boat. And this is the first time that Alexei, seeing himself like betrayed by the high command, defies Moscow. Yep. And he knows that like his father, he's going to the gulag. He will not get out of this. But again, with a lovely quip from Harrison Ford, when asked about this, he goes, well, it's a family tradition, isn't it? He's had enough. Even a guy who was that loyal to party up at this point understands what needs to be done. He gets it and says, get the men off. And so the two subs tie off. Men are transferred from one place to another. Vadim, you know, who who had come out of the beast lair in just really bad shape, makes it out of the boat at least and is carried over to the other sub. He's trying to find the photo of Katya, of, of his girl, and realizes once it's handed to him that he is blind, cannot see her. Alexi is stifling a cough here and there. There may be some radiation issues that are going on with him. And we get this interesting moment between Alexi and Polinian, right? Where Alexi asks him, he's like, why didn't you take control? What all of us are thinking, like, why didn't you take control? And Polinian says what his men did was wrong. And it's honestly interesting because it is sort of what you said earlier is like, the transition of power wasn't done in a moral way. And so he couldn't accept it. And so Alexei gets to the new sub and he learns that Moscow wants the sailors to testify against him because they assume that like his father, he is 
going to be branded some sort of traitor. The betrayal is final here. It's been confirmed to Alexei. Moscow, who you have been trying to serve this entire time, is not trying to serve you. And by the way, they're going to try to do to you what they did to your father and, and send you away forever. That is what caps this time at sea um, and this whole adventure that we've had and misadventure that we've had with everyone getting onto a new sub is Alexi kind of coming to the realization that the people that he is serving are not serving him. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, now that everyone is off the boat and they're being decontaminated, we can cut to further in the future as Alexi is on trial in front of the brass at Moscow. And we have Polenin who is testifying on his behalf. And it's very interesting because we've seen these shots of these men who, you know, have been affected by the radiation. And Alexi has clearly lost some of his hair. He definitely has had some radiation affecting him. But Polenin testifies that And it's very interesting, this unique duty of a captain, that the crew did its duty. There can only be one captain of a ship. Seven men have died. We assume that Pavel and Vadim are are among those. More are slowly dying. And yet he turns to Alexei and in front of the top brass in Moscow says, I would sail with you again. It's a moment that, again, shows us who Polonin is, right? He's a stand-up guy. He's a guy who relates to people as people, mm-hmm. even if Alexei isn't the type of person that he would have chosen to be in command of the thing. He he can understand Alexei and that the motivations were pure, even if the actions were not great. He also faces the people in Moscow and basically puts up a middle finger to them and just says, none of you have the right to judge him. Like you, you know, you here in your ivory tower who are not at sea, who have never faced this like difficult of a decision, have no right to judge this man who has been put in this position of being responsible for everyone. I mean, it's consistent with Polinian's character a lot because he is not afraid to stand up to the brass but it's again a development because he is willing to stand up for Alexi. And we are left at the end of that scene without a resolution in terms of what did actually happen because of Polonin's testimony or, or, or in spite of Polonin's testimony to Alexi. But I think the implication there is that Polonin helped um, mm-hmm. in, in keeping Alexi from you know whatever fate awaited him. And keep in mind that this entire movie was taking place in like 1968, 1969. Mm-hmm. It was 1961. So it was 61. So it was even further mm-hmm. back. And mm-hmm. the next jump in time that we get, and this is how the, the movie starts to conclude itself, is we get a jump to Moscow in 1989. We see these glimpses of a figure who who seemed to be Alexi, and he's watching the Berlin Wall come down on television. So this whole system that he's lived himself inside of and was loyal to at one point and then was disloyal to is now starting to crumble apart. We get the on-screen cards kind of giving us the tag as to what really happened here, that the captain of the K-19 was acquitted, um, but he never got to drive a submarine again. And then he and the surviving crew were sworn to secrecy about the thing for the rest of their lives. And we get the sense that, you know, that's why at the beginning they say that this couldn't be made for 28 years because we had to wait until the USSR has collapsed. And so this is really, honestly, a very interesting historical story because it's a historical fact that no one was allowed to talk about it. And I don't know about you, Josh, but I really wonder how much they paid for old man makeup because you do get this (laughs) moment where we see Harrison Ford in makeup who's riding the subway and we do get more information. We get this card who says the seven men are dead, like Neeson says earlier. And within a few years, 20 more crew members died from radiation. While we're getting that information, we are seeing, like you said, an old older Alexi riding the subway again. This is how we were introduced to his character at the beginning of the movie was showing up on a subway in a crisp dressed uniform and stepping out into the Moscow rail station 
And here he is riding the rails as an old man, a little broken, still wearing the uniform in a way, you know, pieces of the uniform and, and looking of who he is, but a different person at the end of it. And that could be the end of the movie. But it isn't. We find ourselves in a few moments in what appears maybe to be a park. Uh, soon reveals itself maybe to be a cemetery where another old man is sitting and waiting on a bench. And also in old man makeup is Polinin. It's Neeson. And it's it's an interesting reunion because we are in a cemetery and you sort of go around a grave or something that's sort of breaking the plane of view and you realize that the crew was there 28 years later to honor their fallen comrades. And so we have this moment at the grave of those who died where everyone is saluting them with a toast. The crew who was split on this boat are now back together and are supportive of not just, I think, the two captains, although that's certainly important, but just supportive of themselves as a unit. We all went through this together. No one can ever know what it was like to go through this together, and we are the survivors. And they drink a toast to the heroes. They drink a toast to their comrades. And we end this movie on a photo of the men at their most joyous right before the bottom fell out, out on the ice, posing for a photo in front of the K-19 after having played that soccer game, unaware of everything that was going to change everybody's lives forever. It takes a turn, that movie. It goes from being a film that is about a boat Mm -hmm. and ends up being a movie about the men. I completely agree. I think you have this moment when everyone is toasting that Alexi says he nominated them for this award as heroes, but the state wouldn't give it to them because they weren't at war. And so you sort of have this question. It becomes this sort of movie where if leadership is about treating people as people, that the top brass is not treating everyone as people. And it sort of condemns anyone who sees anyone as just a part of, you know, the party or the wider effort and praises the men who actually went through everything together. It's a nice ending. Mm -hmm. It's a nice ending. The reason I was reluctant to watch this movie when it first came out was the trailer. The trailer made it seem, I thought, derivative of other movies that I had seen. It felt Hmm. a lot like the Hunt for Red Octobers and the Crimson Tides and the Run Silent Run Deeps and all those other things. The trailer made it feel that way. And so I said, I I don't need to see that. There's nothing different here. And it was also Harrison Ford. And it was like, "Eh, okay, do I need to see Harrison Ford as a Russian? Maybe not. That was fair. That That, was a fair that, That was a fair one. So I watched the movie because we were going to talk about it here. And I, again, I started the movie in the mindset of, oh, this is not good. This Mm -hmm. is going on too long. This is not getting anywhere. And halfway through that movie, there was something about that turn from being a movie about a boat to Mm -hmm. being a movie about the people on the boat, even if it was done Mm -hmm. imperfectly and some of the motivations got a little muddled, Mm -hmm. that got its claws into me and made me start to appreciate this movie for what it was, which was a story really about heroism. And that, I think, by the time we get to the end of the movie and we've got everybody standing around the grave and we're talking about heroes and how they weren't able to be recognized as such, and yet we're going to recognize each other as heroes in this group together, that made that moment work for me. And Mm -hmm. therefore, I think, made the movie work for me, even when I thought maybe it wouldn't. 
kind of with you. It's so interesting because this is a movie. I mean, it was a co-production between a bunch of countries, but ultimately it's an American movie about communism. And there's this interesting thing that you're talking about, which is basically like, this is a movie about individuals ultimately. And it's about, you know, individuals who are willing to sacrifice themselves. And there's almost this element of individualistic take on communism where it's like the people within it who are willing to become heroes and to die for everyone else involved in it, those are our true heroes. As opposed to anyone who's touted as like a leader or anyone who's like put forth, it's more like the everyman is our hero. And I agree. I think that the film by the end has really taken you on a journey, whether or not you realize that it has. That's a wonderful thought. That's a great way to wrap up talking about this film, K-19, The Widowmaker, and maybe is the best segue I can think of to get to the deep dive. The deep dive is where we take a little tangent to talk about something we didn't get a chance to talk about related to this movie. You had mentioned uh, that this was a movie about the everyman. Um, Harrison Mm -hmm. Ford tends to play the everyman in every movie that he is in. And so uh, what I'd love to do for a second is just chat about some of your favorite Harrison Ford movies. Are you a Harrison Ford fan? Oh, I am. Exactly what you said. I think Harrison Ford is an actor. You know, you think about Star Wars, you think about Indiana Jones, and you think about how he he always has this character who's sort of this like suave, swashbuckling almost guy who, however, is not necessarily in control of any sort of situation. Like, especially when you think about Indiana Jones, you know, there's a couple moments in, in the indie movies where he's, you know, fighting someone much bigger than him. And the only way he can win is by like turning him into like an airplane propeller or like Han Solo, he's barely getting away from the Galactic Federation. And so seeing him in this role has been really interesting because I feel like he is this more like buttoned up, duty bound kind of person, which is a little bit against type for Harrison Ford. I feel like the only exception I can think of is sort of Sabrina, you know, when he he plays mm-hmm. Linus is another one of those sort of buttoned up people. And, and it's not really what you think of when you think of Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford to me is a little bit like Kevin Costner in that Harrison Ford plays Harrison Ford, right? He plays maybe a slightly different version of Harrison Ford, but he's always kind of Harrison Ford and Kevin Costner always kind of plays Kevin Costner. In the case of Kevin Costner, I don't like that most Mm. of the time. In the case of Harrison Ford, it's kind of comforting in in that I know what I'm going to get when I get a Harrison Ford movie. And so like you said, when we walk him into the role of, you know, a Soviet submarine captain, it's weird because Mm -hmm. that's not where you want him to be. But even in that role, I don't think Harrison Ford can get away from playing what he always does. The man who is just trying to do the thing that needs to be done. He always plays sort of an underdog. There's always this sense that Harrison Ford maybe is not coming in with the most power in a situation. And I feel like that's a little bit consistent with this thing where he is trying to prove like how powerful he is over this situation, over the submarine. But you're right. You know, there's this interesting thing about Harrison Ford where... Gosh, dang it. It's difficult not to cheer for him, if that makes sense. 100%. There's this roguish grin that Harrison Ford does where you have this sense of like, this guy may be flying by the seat of his pants, but man, I'm going to cheer for him. And I feel like this role, I mean, aside from his accent, which it's just impossible to escape Harrison Ford being himself, it doesn't necessarily afford him a lot of those moments. But what it does give him is a couple, especially when he's choosing to dive the boat or come up in the ice, there's a couple of moments where he does have that sort of like 10. Harrison Ford kind of like in a dramatic 
action situation, like the fugitive kind of situation, mm-hmm. he he is able to embody a little bit of that role, even though it's it's a little bit different or off type for him. Basically, to me, what Harrison Ford brings to nearly every role that he brings is a clenched jaw. That's it. He would, <laughs> If he walks in and just clenches that jaw, there is no one else that can do that and portray that sort of intensity of emotion on the right side of things as he can. If I could go back and was put in charge of casting K-19, I don't know that Harrison Ford would be my first choice. Not the least of which reason is <laughs> not the act. The accent aside, the mm-hmm. Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford aside. Mm-hmm. I think Harrison Ford got 25 mil for this movie. It was like Oof. it was like 20 days of work and he's getting 25 mil on a 100 mil budget. So that might be the other reason why I might look another direction for someone to play uh, Alexi. But that's just me. Let's take our concerns and, and comments about Harrison Ford and say in this film, he did okay. Agreed. He did okay. I don't have anything against Harrison Ford. I think, you know, he, he did his darndest. I just don't think he looks very Russian. Doesn't look Russian, doesn't sound Russian, but you know, he isn't Russian. So good on you. Good on you for trying. Let's play You Can't Handle the Truth. And You Can't Handle the Truth. I am going to be asking Ms. Mary Thurman some questions that are either about or related to or tangential to or hell, even completely random about K19, the Widowmaker. And uh, you're going to do your best to answer them. Are you ready to play, Mary? 100%. Let's go. Here we go. Question one. Early in his career, Harrison Ford was cast as Lieutenant Schaefer in the Civil War era film, A Time for Killing. In the film's credits, he is listed as Harrison J. Ford. What does the J stand for? Is it A, Junior? His father was also named Harrison, but liked Junior as a middle name. B, Jones, which is where his swashbuckling archaeologist character comes from. Or C, nothing. Harrison Ford has no middle name. Junior seems like almost a reference to Indiana Jones again, because his name is in Indiana. It's Junior. I want it to be that he has no middle name, so I'm going to say C. You're saying C, Harrison Ford has no middle name? Let's go for it. That is correct. Harrison Ford has no middle name. The J was there for no good reason. I really did not expect to get that one right. (laughs) Very, very good. You're starting off really well. I think this is going to bode well for question two. Soviet general and marshal of the Soviet Union, Yorgi Konstantinovich Zhukov, is often credited as a hero who helped end the siege of Leningrad in World War II. Lesser known to history, he has also been claimed as vital in the invention of what less world-changing item? Was it A, clear soda pop, B, wheelie shoes, or C, the crimping iron? Again, I don't know why, but I'm really feeling B. I'm feeling wheelie shoes. Like, I just really want him to be skating around the halls of the USSR. I, I'm. This is what I'm choosing. B, wheelie shoes. <sighs> I don't know if it's true, but I want it to be true. So yes, I'm going with B. No, I'm sorry. It was actually A, clear soda pop. Um, He was introduced to Coca-Cola by General Dwight Eisenhower. But when you live in the Soviet Union, Coca-Cola is an American product. You don't want to be seen sipping on that. And so he asked the manufacturers to make him a clear version, which looked more like vodka. I thought for sure that the carbonation would give him away as not being vodka. But honestly, good on him. I guess we have him to thank for Sprite. And now we have an idea for carbonated vodka. There we go. You've got one question right, one question wrong. This is the time to put up or shut up. Let's move to question three. 
the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, known for his policies like perestroika and glasnost, and also for the big bright red birthmark on his head, could at one time have released nuclear weapons on the world. He didn't. But in 2009, he did release what? Was it A, a skin cream specifically designed to enhance your fame-making skin blotches, B, a $130,000 solo album of romantic ditties, or C, his long-awaited radio show, Gorbachat. I, I want all of these to be true. I've got to ask for the hint. I don't know. Okay, the hint on this one is Mr. Gorbachev, tear down our emotional walls. Oh, I've got to go Gorbachev. Going with oh, Gorbachev, see his his radio show. Uh, the others are a, a cream design for your fame-making skin blotches, a $130,000 solo album of romantic ditties, or his uh, his radio talk show. I really want Gorbachev to exist, so I've got to go for it. No, I'm sorry. It was actually B in 2009. He released an album of romantic love songs. It was called Songs for Raisa, who was his late wife. Wow. He he sang uh, some music that was her favorite and then donated all of the money from the album to a charity to fight childhood cancer. Honestly, that's just as good as Gorbachev. I'm not disappointed. I really wanted Gorbachev to be true too. No, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you. I am so sorry, Mary Thurman. You did not get that question right, but you did get one right. I didn't even tell you at the beginning of this what you were playing for. Doesn't matter oh, no. now, but you were playing for uh, 30 tons of fresh water suitable for cooling a <laughs> reactor. Uh, that's okay. I, you probably don't have a place to store 30 tons of water in an apartment in Los Angeles anyway. You know, LA, I did my best for you, so that's all I can do. Well, that's okay. You can get back at me for having done this to you. I think you have a question for me. Oh, I do. And I'm sorry, you're only going to be playing for pride. Uh, but <laughs> Well, that's here's... good. I could use some. <laughs> Submarine movies are naturally very cramped. In fact, the U.S. Navy has height requirements for who can be assigned to a submarine. Are Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson short enough to actually be assigned to a U.S. submarine? A, Neeson and Ford are short enough. B, Ford is short enough, but Neeson is not. C, neither man is short enough. Oh, I love this question. This could go anyway because it heights for any of them. I have no idea. So yes, tell me the hint. Okay. The height limit for a U.S. submarine is four inches taller than the average American man. So you just have to decide how above average you think these two men are. <laughs> I'm going to do what you do in elementary school when you don't know the answer. I'm picking C. Neither man is short enough to serve on a, on a submarine. That's my final answer. You're correct. Neither man is short enough. Yay! The, that's amazing. I don't think I would have gotten this right. The height requirement for U.S. Navy submarines is that you have to be under six foot one. And if you are six foot one and over, you cannot serve on a U.S. Navy submarine. Now, according to the internet, according to Google, Harrison Ford is six foot one and Liam Neeson is six foot four. Neither man would be allowed to serve on a U.S. Navy submarine. Both of them seemed like very tall men to me. I get a round of applause for that, I think, just for being lucky. And I think you well, get a round of applause for coming up with such a great question. Cheers to both of us for doing so well and you can't handle the truth. It's time for Rave Rental or Refund. 
Mary, this is where we get to give our final thoughts and uh, feelings about each of these movies. Is it a rave? Is it something that you would have gone to see on the first day or or tell the friends and neighbors about? Is it a rental? Uh, I would have gotten it from the Redbox or the Blockbuster or whatever was around at the time, or is it a refund? Please give me my money back. Mary Thurman, K-19 The Widowmaker, what do we say? Here's the thing, Josh. I did rent this film. So, <laughs> however, I, I know that you want the response based on what I thought of the film, and I'm going to stick with it. I think it's a rental. I think that, to me, the lack of, of strong character motivation doesn't make it a rave, but the cinematography and everything we talked about doesn't make it a refund. I think you rent it. I think it's it's worth watching, but perhaps not for that expensive movie ticket price. I was absolutely convinced going into this that it was a refund. I was absolutely convinced from the first minute of before I ever started watching this and probably well into it that this was a refund and I got turned around. I don't think it's a movie that I would necessarily have clamored to see on the first day, although I love this genre. I absolutely would have called it a rental. So uh, yeah, Mary, I think we're in agreement. Glad to be in agreement with you, Josh. (laughs) And this is the time for you to take the mic, Mary Thurman, and plug some things. Tell us about your socials, whatever you want to talk about, go. I work for Stupid Buddy Studios, as you know. We do have a show that's on Hulu, and it is Marvel's MODOK. So everybody should go out and watch it. I don't know if it's the first ever stop motion Marvel show, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here at risk of being false and say it might be the first ever stop motion Marvel show. It's very good. Patton Oswalt's the main character. Ben Schwartz is his son. All-star cast. You're going to love it. I have the Hulu. If you don't have the Hulu, get the Hulu. Stupid Buddy (laughs) Studios, Mary Thurman. Mary, hey, thanks for being here and talking about K-19 The Widowmaker. This has been so fun. Thank you for having me, Josh. I really enjoyed it. This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Mary Thurman. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you love the show and need some more, subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Believe me when I say it is massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. You can also support us with a donation and visit our website at subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. We'll welcome you back soon for our next episode. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.